Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I know we don't have a lot of time tonight, and there's a lot of material here to cover. I'm going to do this really informally. I have not written this out, so I am going to just plunge right in and um, try to try to stop when I can and tell you what you're looking at. So this is a this slide of this mosaic comes from a baptistry. It's a sixth century baptistry. As I said, it's in Tunisia today. It was in the Roman Africa province. Uh, at the time, and it's a very typical way of emphasizing the idea that the one who comes for baptism is like the deer longing for streams of water. And we think in some in many places in the ancient world, this is the kind of psalm that would have been sung by the candidates coming for baptism. Um, many in many cases on the, during the Easter vigil, fairly soon within the Christian tradition. So I'm going to open up with a big discussion of really early origins of baptism and hope that these things that I bring up here, these sort of questions that we want to address will come back and maybe these are things that you will want to return to in the Q&A period. So a few things to get us started. One of the things that one thinks about with baptism is where do Christians get this idea? You know, who who does this? Who, who does anybody ask John the Baptist? What are you up to? Um, it seems that there's something new happening here, um, and yet it's not really very well explained in the in the scripture that we have, the New Testament. So one of the things that scholars want to think about is what were the origins or the influences, or how did Christians begin to do this practice of initiation by means of washing in water? And one of the obvious things that one wants to think about is the Jewish practice of ritual bathing, when they call the mikvah. And we know that Jews practice this. Um, even certain sectarian Jews were very interested in regularly practicing this ritual of ritual bathing to uh, wash away external impurities. If you'd come into contact with blood or a dead body or semen or something of that sort, um, it was a repeatable uh, bath. And in this bath, uh, your whole body would be bathed. You would come. You would be completely immersed in water. But it wasn't an, an initiation bath for Jews. One of the major initiation rituals, of course, is circumcision uh, for men, obviously. But um, and in Greco-Roman religion, which we could look to as possibly some kind of influence or resource, there's nothing really comparable to this bathing ritual. In many initiation rites, people would have bathed before they were initiated in, into a cult like the cult of Demeter and Persephone at Ephesus or the cult of Isis, but it wasn't itself a, an initiatory aspect, uh, initiatory action. So it's something new that's happening. And one of the questions is, what is John actually, John the Baptist, actually doing? Um, and he gets asked, what are you doing? <laughs> actually, in the Gospel of John. Another question that will come up, which is who then receives it? Um, and this is a long-standing question within the Christian tradition. Is this a ritual for adult believers? Or can you baptize infants? Can children be baptized who can't speak for their own faith? And so forth. So that's another question that circles around the story of baptism and still does today. A third issue is who then is the minister of baptism? Who administers the rite? 
And we have who is the baptizer. And we do, of course, have John the Baptist as a kind of model for the beginning. Is the bishop the uh, ordinary minister of baptism, as we think the bishop was in the early church? But when can that be delegated to a priest, uh, a presbyter, or a deacon, or a deaconess? And even, in fact, can anybody who has been baptized actually give the ritual, uh, which is actually what we do think generally today, but that goes all the way back to the third century, at least, um, that anybody who has been baptized in emergency can baptize uh, somebody. Um, should be, should you be run into somebody on their deathbed and they haven't been baptized and you are baptized then and you're asked to baptize, then you can do that. Another question that comes up is what is the purpose and what was the purpose of baptism? I don't think that most of people who think about this ritual actually realize how complicated it is and how many significations it has and how many things in some ways you would say that it does. Um, and I'm going to come toward the end of this lecture and say a little bit more about that. Um, but when John the Baptist is proclaiming this, it's a baptism for the repentance or confession of sin. He doesn't actually say it's for the forgiveness of sins, although that very soon becomes what it's the New Testament would have it be. But it's also, a, so it's a kind of cleansing from impurity. But it has other meanings as well. The gift of the Holy Spirit is one of the important meanings of baptism very early, um, as well as becoming initiated into the community, coming to belong. One of the symbols of that, of course, is that you may receive a new name at the time that you're baptized. So it signifies that idea of incorporation into an, a new community of believers. So there's many things that it does, including uh, idea of rebirth and regeneration. Um, so we talk about being born again. So baptism is a very complicated ritual. And you will see in a minute that it has many different parts. It isn't simply uh, immersion in water or washing in water. Many, many things go on in the ritual of baptism. And it's, that's interesting because the word baptism itself implies dunking in water. Um, so it, it comes maybe to have many other meanings than simply that. Where did it take place? Um, and we'll come back to thinking a little more about that when we'll see something in a minute. But we know that John the Baptist baptized in uh, a river um, and it was outdoors. And so many Christians even today would prefer to be baptized in a river. Um, but pretty soon, at least no later than the middle of the third century, Christians are building spaces specifically designed to house this ritual and maybe only this ritual. So we have either um, rooms and chambers within church spaces or even freestanding buildings designed and built primarily for this and with a font within it. So uh, baptism becomes an indoor ritual at some point, sometime probably around the middle of the third century. When did it take place? Was there a special time, a time of day or a season? And that happens to be something we know fairly early, again, by the third century, that baptism is a, a ritual that takes place at high festivals often. So Epiphany and the Easter vigil or during the Holy Week or during Pentecost. So these are times when people were baptized en masse in groups. Um, we, we might see many people are baptized at once. And this, of course, will change once uh, infant baptism becomes more common and children are baptized shortly after birth. You can't really necessarily collect a whole lot of them and baptize them all at, all at once. So that will change also over time. And yet in the Catholic Church, as many of you will probably know, we have recovered something that we call the rite of Christian initiation in adulthood. And it often is then uh, designed particularly to take place during the Easter vigil or during the Holy Week. A big question that's going to vex the history of this ritual is it is it repeatable? Can you do can you be baptized again? And when might you want to be? Um, so um, is is that a repeatable? What and then what actually happens in the ritual? 
And then these other questions that, that actually happen to really be fairly important throughout the history of Christianity is, did Jesus baptize anybody? Did he baptize his own disciples? Were they baptized? And if they were, when were they? It's not very clear in the New Testament that Jesus actually baptized anybody or that his disciples, we don't really understand exactly when they were baptized. There's different theories about that. And maybe we can come back to that. Um, so finally, again, back to the question of this repeatability or whether it's what you do when you receive a person into your uh, community who you believe was baptized in a schismatic or heretical sect or by an unworthy minister, um, what happens? What do we need to do? And this is a huge controversy in the in the fourth and early fifth century in particular. So we're thinking about that, but it comes up again also during the Reformation period as well. So these are questions that just uh, emer emerge very early within the tradition and will stay with the Christian tradition throughout its history. So in order to sort of dive into this, I think it's the best thing to do is to sort of look at the New Testament and see what we can find out about it, um, starting with the Synoptic Gospels. So this is, um, and here I have um, interspersed some of my artwork for you. So this is a, a lovely ivory, uh, sixth century ivory plaque from Egypt. It's now in the British Museum, and it shows John the Baptist um, baptizing Jesus um, from the perspective of somebody in Egypt in the sixth century. Um, you can see that the hand of God descends from above, um, and the Holy Spirit. So often in artwork, in early Christian artwork, the hand of God takes the place of the voice. So when we have the story of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, you will remember that uh, from that story that uh, either G the, the voice is heard either by Jesus only or by the people around, and that changes from one gospel to the next. The dove, of course, descending um, in in. Uh, is part of that same story. And the figure of John the Baptist here on the left has got his right hand on the, on the head of, of, of this figure that is meant to be Christ. Um, and you'll notice that Christ is nude, and this is really important. Uh, baptism was a ritual um, that in, in which the recipient was nude. Um, and that reflects again, I think, on some of the original Jewish practices of bathing, ritual bathing had to be fully nude. Um, there's some angels behind, and then there's this funny little figure who's partially cut off on the right, is that actually the personification of the river, the river god, who is in some sense either fleeing or witnessing this event. Now, I'm going to turn quickly over to the text, um, and I wanted to say, in case you have not actually ever noticed this, that the baptism of Jesus is only mentioned in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the Synoptic Gospels. And so the Gospel of John doesn't precisely tell us that Jesus was baptized, but we do have this in the Synoptic Gospels. And it's, interestingly enough, it's how the Gospel of Mark opens. Um, you probably realize that the Gospel of Mark does not have an infancy narrative. We don't know anything about Jesus' birth from the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark opens with the story of Jesus' baptism, and that's important to keep in mind. The Gospel of John doesn't then have the same opening, doesn't even really cl clearly mention that Jesus was baptized. The, the baptizer is there and he sees the one who, on whom the dove descends, but that's all he foretold. Um, what was its setting? We, um, we hear in the, the Synoptic Gospels, um, particularly Matthew and Mark, that John was baptizing in the Jordan or in Luke, in the region around the Jordan River, in Bethany, across the Jordan, um, in the Gospel of John. So it's a little geographical confusion, but not too terribly uh, off, not too terribly con contradictory. One of the things that comes up, and it is really discussed fairly early in many of the commentaries on this story that the early church fathers would have written, is why did Jesus need to be baptized? If it's a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, well, we don't want to suggest that Jesus had sins that needed to be forgiven. So 
one of the things that we may come back to in discussion is why does Jesus need baptizing? And in fact, the New Testament even has John the Baptist saying to Jesus, why? I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. Um, and so that's kind of uh, already given to us as a kind of puzzle or a question of why is Jesus undergoing this ritual at all? Um, and then finally, and I sort of already mentioned this, did Jesus baptize anybody? And were the apostles themselves baptized? And if they were, um, when were they? And uh, early church commentators really do want to think about this and want to puzzle about what were the moments. Did the disciples that Jesus called, um, were they already baptized by John? And that's something we may come back to. Um, who is John the Baptist? And that's another big question. Um, where did he come from? We hear that he comes out of the wilderness. We know he's, we are told in the Gospel of Luke that this is the cousin of Jesus, but we're only told that in the Gospel of Luke. Um, so we don't know much about him. There are some theories that he belonged to one of these sects of Judaism that did practice ritual bathing and maybe um, kind of transformed a repeatable ritual for external impurities into something that was more of a once-in-a-lifetime uh, ritual, but we don't, we don't really even know that for sure from what we get about what John's baptism was. What was it? Well, we, we are told it was a baptism in water, which was the word baptism implies, for repentance or forgiveness of sins or the confession of sins. Um, but he says, and this is really important, and it is something that will come up again and again in early Christian thinking about this ritual. When John says, um, in many places, um, and it comes back actually up in Acts as well, that I baptize you in water with water for repentance, but one more powerful than I will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John baptizes in water. But it's not clear, I think, that you could say that he anticipates that the one coming after him is going to baptize in water, but rather will baptize with the Holy Spirit and maybe with fire, if you're reading the Gospels of Mark and, I mean, sorry, of Matthew and Luke. So the question that will have to be discussed is, is John's baptism simply a provisional in baptism until the time when Jesus comes, and it's only a baptism in water, and that what Jesus will bring will be something different. Will it also be a baptism in water, which is completed with a gift of the Holy Spirit? Um, that is kind of what's going to happen, but that's not entirely clear. So one could say what John is expecting to happen may not be how it ends up kind of working out in the long run. Um, I chose this image from the Gospel of Rabelais, a Syrian gospel from the 6th century, in order to show you one of the images, and there are not very many, in which, again, we have the hand of God using, you know, acting as the voice, speaking, and the descending dove. John the Baptist with his right hand, very important, keep this in mind, on the head of Jesus, um, who's in the water, but you can see there's a flame coming up out of the water. And so that actually is very interesting because of John's comment about he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So one thing that we want to think about is do we uh, where do we find fire in the baptismal ritual even today? And there might be a place that you do. I chose to show you this image um, and it's a, it's a, a photograph, um, and I think this one comes from National Geographic, but I've been in this place. This is the side of the Jordan River that's in the on the Jordan side, the, the country Jordan. Um, it's not the side of the river where you find most of the pilgrims coming for baptism in the Jordan, because they often get today, when if you go to Israel and you were to go to this place where we think that Jesus, John was baptizing, um, it's not too far from the Dead Sea. Um, you will find a lot of people lining up to be baptized there. I'm assuming they hadn't been baptized before. So it's one of those instances of maybe we're baptizing again. 
Um, but this is the Jordan side, and I think it's actually kind of wonderful because it's possibly a little closer to where it would have really happened. Uh, but but not many people actually can get there. So I just give you this image that you have of what it looks like today. Um, it doesn't look particularly blue and running and cool stream at all. It's a little stagnant, but that's that's what we have. So we once we move past the story of Jesus' baptism in the in the synoptic gospels, and there's a couple other things to bear in mind. Jesus at one point saying to his disciples, Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? In which he he does actually probably mean his death. Um, and so there's another meaning here for baptism in that text. But one of the things that happens then in the book of Acts, which we most scholars think was also written by the, um, the writer who wrote Luke, um, we have something new happening. So we start to see the development of a ritual and some questions that have to be addressed about this ritual. Something new is going on, something that hadn't happened in, as far as we know, in the baptism of John. And we don't know much more about any other baptisms in the Synoptic Gospels. But here in the book of Acts, we get a whole bunch of baptisms and some things that emerge that sort of cause us to pause. The first baptism is the one that of 3,000 people following Peter's sermon or speech to them at Pentecost, he converts them, they're baptized. Um, and it says that this is, conveys both forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So now we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. So one question is, did we need to have Pentecost uh, happen as an event before the Holy Spirit could be given in the ritual of baptism? There's one other possibility that in the Gospel of John, when Jesus breathes on his disciples and gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit to forgive sins, that may be the moment in which the Spirit is given. Um, but we see that it's kind of connected in the book of Acts, actually, to the day of Pentecost. So it's a, something new happens now. From this point on, baptism will not be just a ritual of, of water bathing. It will now include a gift and receiving a reception of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes baptisms are performed in the name, and, and, and throughout all of the book of Acts, the, I should just point out that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 28, we do have the Trinitarian formula. Um, and I had to grab my Bible, so I'm going to just read it to you. It's right there at verse 19. It's almost the last verse of the Gospel of Matthew, in which um, Jesus comes and, um, and says to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Biblical scholars tend to think that this is a late addition to the Gospel of Matthew. And the interesting part of that is that triune baptismal name is not going to appear in the book of Acts. In every instance in the book of Acts, when a baptism happens, is in the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, and you may know that there are still Christian groups that will baptize only in the name of the Lord Jesus, in part because of this uh, fact in, in the book of Acts. Um, and so that's one thing to keep in mind. Another thing is that baptisms are performed here by, and in Acts 8 by Philip of a group of uh, Samaritans who are another sect of, of Jews in a way, and in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that required, according to the text, that Peter and John would come after Philip in order to lay on hands and give the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that is actually something that suggests that a baptism in water no longer is a complete baptism. It needs to be completed with the gift, the ritual gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that suggests also that water comes first and spirit comes second, but that isn't always how it works out, because there's a couple of instances in the book of Acts when the gift of the spirit seems to precede the water baptism, um, as in the baptism of Paul by Ananias, and in the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, perhaps. That's a, one other possibility. Um, in another instance, um, uh, Paul baptizes um, 
into John's, uh, he encounters people who've been baptized into John's baptism, and so baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then he lays on hands for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and so forth. So there are different ways that this takes place, but we do at least know by the time we're in the book of Acts um, that we see this sort of double ritual, um, both a water bath, maybe the baptism of John, but needs to, it isn't a whole ritual until it's completed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And how is that given? Is given by the imposition of a hand. And this is a really important gesture in Christianity. And it has many, many purposes, many functions. One of the ways we see the imposition of hands in the synoptic gospels or in the gospels themselves, not just the synoptic gospels, is the ritual of healing. The, the placing of a hand is a healing gesture. Um, it also then becomes later a gesture of the of, of forgiveness of sins post-baptismal, of, of a reconciliation gesture. It can have many meanings. It can have a blessing meaning. But in this case, the way that the gift of the Holy Spirit is given is by this ritual gesture. Now, what's interesting about all of this is that it starts to be thought of as anointing, but there's no oil. There's no oil in the book of Acts. So we don't see any use of a chrism uh, at yet at baptism. That will come up very quickly and fairly soon in the Christian tradition um, of the idea of your know, chrismation being part of baptism, but not necessarily always in neatly tied to the gift of the Holy Spirit, depending on where you are in the world and what time that you're talking about. So it's a it's a complicated uh, and and sometimes very confusing um, activity and gesture. Um, so this this raises some of our questions. Um, instances of baptism in water after the Holy Spirit has been poured out. Um, when does the imposition of hands get added? Why does it get added? And when why why can we speak of anointing, which happens in many of Paul's epistles as well? But we're not using any oil. Anointing implies oil. It's hard to anoint without oil. But we're sort of thinking that it means many things. Um, and then the a question of the baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's not used. The triune name is not used um, yet. And then finally, I think one question that we could ask in, in the instances in the book of Acts, when whole households are, Baptist, are baptized, like Lydia's household, would they have included infants? Would they have included children? And that will depend on where you stand on whether infants, infant baptism is right or not, appropriate or not. Um, lots more to say. So early on, we start to see some changes. The image on the left is a catacomb painting from Rome. It comes from the catacomb of uh, Peter and Marcellinus. And we see here again, the imposition of hands now. It's going to be the right hand on the head. And John the Baptist is the person doing that. This naked person who's being baptized is probably meant to be Jesus and not just an ordinary person being baptized by a bishop. Though it's not entirely clear. It could be a baptism of an ordinary person, but that, if it, that would be the case. It would be unusual. So we're going to think about the fact that in the next few images you're going to see, Jesus is often depicted as a smaller person, a younger person, and always as a nude person. But in this document that we call the Didache, which is a church order document, we sometimes say the teaching of the Twelve. And we have, and we think it comes from Syria, but some people maybe think that maybe it comes from Egypt, um, dated around the, maybe around the turn of the second century, maybe before that. It's, it, the dating is very disputed. But I want you to notice something. So fairly early, we see some things. First about the water. You have to have running water. You need cold water. You need fresh water if you can get it. But if you can't have that, then you can use warm water or still water. But you pour it three times, pour it on the head, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So now we see the triune formula uh, for the first time um, outside of the Gospel of Matthew. And you also notice that people need to fast before they receive baptism. So that's actually another uh, interesting point. 
moving forward, uh, the next important text on uh, the history of baptism is this text, which comes to us from uh, a man named Justin, who was a martyr. His last name isn't Martyr. Um, he lived in Rome. Uh, he might have been a catechist. Um, so we date this to about 150 to 160. Um, and he talks about the fact that water, we go, we take people to where there is water. So we're still looking at an outdoor ritual. And the bath and Didache, you're sort of implying also cold, running, fresh stream water. So we see that we're still probably baptizing outdoors um, by this time. Um, and we actually see again the idea that we have the inv invocation of the triune name in the name of the God, the Father, the Lord of the universe, Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And he says this washing is called illumination because those who learn these things are illuminated. Now, what's and then finally, we take them when they're done with washing to the place where they're, everyone's assembled and they join in for the first communion, for the first Eucharist. Neither the Didache, which you just saw, or this text say anything about the gift of the Holy Spirit as a separate ritual. It seems to be implied, but it doesn't sort of, we don't talk yet about something that's distinct or an imposition of hands. And this is also true, and a little bit of information we have from this Bishop of Lyon, written toward the end of the second century, in which he talks about you're being sanctified, but you're being sanctified in the washing. Um, you've been washed and believing in the name of the Lord and receiving the Spirit. So it's beginning to emerge that we see the book of Acts not quite being followed in these early texts. And here again, we have another image of a kind of naked Christ being baptized by John the Baptist, the descending dove, and the fleeing personification of the Jordan River, that funny little man who's got his hands out there um, and, and seems to be, uh, Jesus seems to be almost standing upon him. So summarizing really quickly, what we've seen here is that in the, in the Didache and in the Justin Martyr, we see some things happening. There's a pre-baptismal instruction. I kind of went over that pretty quickly. In the Didache, you, you have to be instructed. You have to ascend to live according to the instructions you receive, probably mostly moral instruction, not theology. We're not sending people yet to theological classes, but possibly some rudimentary ones. Uh, you fast before baptism. Your, your assembly may choose to fast with you in kind of in solidarity. There's a washing in water, invocation in the name of the Holy Trinity now, which seems to be what is done instead of the Lord Jesus. Um, we will see that many communities will still, you know, for a while, still be baptizing in the name of the Lord Jesus, and that will be a consternation for the church. Are those baptisms valid if that's the case? Um, and they received immediately after baptism to receive the first communion. So um, moving on, and then we start to see more development, um, and it gets more complicated. We start to see an anointing. I'm watching my time here, so I'm going to rush a little bit, but I'm starting to see, uh, so we start to see an anointing here with blessed unction in this treatise on baptism, very long, and a lovely long treatise by a man named Tertullian who was in Car lived in Carthage, was not a priest, uh, was written around the year 200, maybe a little bit after, maybe a little before. Um, and he says, it's not in the waters that we attain the Holy Spirit, in the water under the witness of the angel, we're cleansed and prepared for the Holy Spirit. So we begin to see again, the bipartite ritual coming back up and including the idea of an uh, anointing with a blessed unction. And it's tied in his mind to the idea of the anointing of priests, particularly in the Old Testament. So Aaron was anointed by Moses. Um, and so that was one of the ways that we kind of make a priestly people through the anointing. And might, you might think about uh, the text of uh, First Peter, I believe, at this point, where you're a royal, a royal people and a holy priesthood. So that will require an anointing, as was the tradition. Um, and then there's a lot of debate about whether what we do, we've got naked women being baptized. Can men be baptizing these? Should there be some kind of decorum? Should there be some way of protecting these women's modesty? And we do see the idea of a deaconess at, at, at the ritual of baptism, to, particularly to assist women, um, and the invocation of the divine names. Now, 
moving into the fourth century when everything blows up and it gets very complicated. Um, it's a really beautiful ritual. It's a lovely expanded ritual. And we have no time to go through all of these texts, but we can we have something called the apostolic tradition, which is assigned to a man who lived in the third century named Hippolytus, probably isn't by him, or at least it's, a, it's an amalgamation of several texts. And we think that we read about baptism was probably a bit later, probably from the fourth century. And we have bishops from Milan, Ambrose, and from Jerusalem, Cyril, and John Chrysostom, uh, and Theodore of Mopsuestia. So we have these uh, what we call big catechetical texts or baptismal texts that tells us what happened. And in order to quickly run through them all, we have a walkthrough ritual here. Candidates are enrolled uh, at some point for baptism, probably in many cases at the Easter Vigil, and they'll be enrolled at the beginning of Lent. It's going to change from place to place a little bit. There's instruction, there's catechesis, um, identification of sponsors who will speak, who will speak for the behavior of the of those who are being baptized. Um, there's Lenten practices of fasting and retraining, re, um, refraining from uh, bathing, for example, um, receiving scrutinies in church. Um, right before the week before baptism, you will get the the the, the candidates will be finally given the Lord's Prayer and the Creed, which have been held back from them until the time. When the day comes, the water will be blessed in the font. There'll be rituals outside the, 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 now the structure that's built particularly for baptism to house this ritual, a, bap, a baptistry, we call them, with a font inside. Um, there'll be an external rite of, of renunciation of Satan, confession of allegiance to Christ. Candidates will take off their clothes. They will receive an initial an anointing over their whole body with olive oil in most places, but not absolutely everywhere, but in most places, which is an exorcistic anointing. Um, and then they will go into the water where in most places, again, they will receive a triple immersion in water with the invocation of the tri triune name, either as given as an interrogation, do you believe? Yes, I do. And so forth. Or as delivered as a, as a recit recited creed. Um, and then there'll be a post-baptismal anointing in, in Milan by a presbyter. And the, Kenneth, the, the newly baptized will receive clean white robes. We call those albs. They're their baptismal robe. And the, in Milan, feet will be washed, which is its only it, it's one of the only places that will happen, although that will be borrowed by Augustine because in, that's where he was baptized in Milan. And he will bring that ritual probably, or at least we know that that was still practiced in Hippo. Um, though not at the same time. And then there'll be a, another imposition of hands by the bishop, and then everybody will join the community for its first ritual, I mean, first Eucharist. The newly baptized will come out of the, it probably um, lined up and, and paraded, processed into the church and received in, with probably shouts of joy by the, new, the community that receives their new members. And they will all receive the first Eucharist together. And lots to say about that, but time is flying. But I want to point out that what we see at this point now is what we call the integrated rite, in which the, it involves conversion, catechesis, instruction, exorcistic anointing, a water bath, confirmation or sealing, and the First Communion. It all happens in one ritual. It's not many parts. It's a complicated ritual with many parts. and. I'm showing you this little baby being baptized in this image because this is exactly how the Greek Orthodox still practice the ritual. They will still renounce Satan. Uh, the godfather or godmother will take care of that part because the baby can't, of course, speak. But those of you who may know about, uh, for instance, Orthodox practices, infants will receive communion after their baptism. So it's, a it's still an integrated and whole rite. It comes apart in the West. Um, fairly early when infant baptism becomes uh, more much more common and infants are children are baptized shortly after birth and one of the rituals that's withheld specifically for the bishop once presbyters begin to practice this and even deacons can practice this ritual the bishop's uh, prerogative is to is to perform the confirmation or the sealing. And of course, a bishop can't be at every baptism. So this is left off until a later time is how we get a second sacrament.
out of this originally unified right. Um, all right, so this is, I'm going to sort of hurry on a little bit and turn to two more slides, and then we might have to stop pretty soon. But I want to talk about raising these questions of these controversies that are very early, um, and they still are with us um, today. What, we should, what should we do with people who were baptized in the wrong church or by a or in a heretical church, or by the wrong formula, they weren't using the Trinitarian formula, or by an unworthy minister. Um, this is still a, a, a controversy that's still very much with us, and was with us at the begin from the beginning. Whether we baptize infants or only believers, adult believers who can make a confession of faith on their own, and that's of course what divides a lot of Protestant groups, as you may realize. Should baptism be by immersion or submersion, or can it be done by sprinkling or effusion? And there are still churches, in particularly Protestant churches, that really believe baptism must be fully a ritual of full submersion in the water. And then should baptism be private, or should it be happening within the congregation? Um, and this is sometimes a practical question. You had a lot of baptisms to do. You may have to do them you know, after after Mass, and so it isn't within the community any longer. And that's a controversy in a lot of places. And one last sort of slide to think about is what I talk about in a book that I've done on the images of baptism. And I try to divide baptism not just by the complex ritual that it is and all of the parts that it has, but the things that it, it gives. Um, and so it it is a ritual of cleansing, of washing from sin, of healing the body. Um, we have the model of Naaman the Syrian um, to go with the healing of Jesus, or the Jesus healing the paralytic at the water, and these kinds of stories. There's a sort of cleansing from sin, a healing ritual here that goes with bathing. Makes sense. Washing off the impurities and cleansing the body. But it's also a ritual inclusion. So you become a member of the community in this way. So it is an initiation ritual into a community and not just a cleansing ritual. So in this way, it's different from maybe what John the Baptist was practicing. It is a giving of the Holy Spirit. That's another part of this ritual, as we've seen, and already develops immediately in the book of Acts. But it's what John the Baptist promised, that his baptism might go away, but what will stay will be the baptism of Jesus with the giving of the Holy Spirit um, and the beginning of sanctification. It's also a, a rebirth, a death and rebirth, and so it's idea of regeneration. That's very close to repentance and cleansing, but it's a little bit different. So we talk about baptism as, and we say, people say, are you born again? That's what we're talking about, this idea that you're dying to your old self and you're being reborn from the church's womb. And the church's womb is its baptismal font, just like a mother's womb. Church is a mother, the font is the womb of the mother. And it's also a participation in Romans 6, Paul talks about this as the participation in Christ's death and resurrection. So that's also part of the story. And finally, there's a way in which baptism makes all of us a new Adam and new Eve, and it's a kind of rest restoration of creation. Um, in a way, the world becomes Eden, or it, we can anticipate the Eden to come. So all of this is part of this complicated ritual with many parts and many many dimensions. Um, and so it's hard to wrap our hands around this in one short little uh, time period. I'm going to pass over this. I'm going to just take you into one spot, and then we'll stop for questions. Um, I'm watching my time carefully here. Um, so this is the probably the uh, one of the maybe the second oldest purpose-built baptismal building, and this is the building in Rome. Um, it was built for the Lateran Basilica, and it was the initial building was built under the Emperor Constantine, who was the first Christian. Emperor of Rome around the three, maybe around 315 to 320. And it was built as an octagonal structure externally. And you can see this outside. Maybe some of you have seen this building. Um, and it, the octagon is a very important uh, shape for baptism. And maybe you know of baptismal fonts that are octagonal. And it's because it symbolizes the eighth day or the first day of the new creation, the first day of the new week. 
If you go inside, it looks like this now. And so it's a little bit different than it looked when it was built, but these beautiful purple columns made from a stone called porphyry are original to the structure. Um, they were not necessarily always in the place they are now, but there's a, there is at the very top of them an inscription, and you can see some of the letters there. And I wanted to just share this. Maybe this will be my closing slide. Um, and then we'll take some questions. Um, that this uh, inscription is an eight-line poem written by the man who became Pope Leo the Great, but he was still the archdeacon of Rome, we think. Um, so it was written about 425, and when uh, Sixtus III was still the pope in Rome, still the bishop of Rome. And this is sort of my translation of these eight lines. And I think it captures what the meaning of baptism was pretty well. And I'm going to just read it quickly. And we'll maybe return to some of the, the symbols or language in it if you have questions. So he says, a people to be consecrated to the heavens. Here is born from a fertile seed established by waters made fruitful by the spirit. So he's speaking of a people, which is a very Roman thing to say. You know, it's kind of the 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 the, the populace, the Semite and the people. So we're a new people. A new people is being born and consecrated here, born from a fertile seed, established by waters made fruitful, or by the Spirit. The Spirit has ascended into the waters to make these water fertile. And he says, plunge in, O sinner, to be cleansed by the sacred flow. Whom it receives old, the wave receives new. No differences exist among those being reborn, hear that word, from whom one font, one spirit, and one faith makes one. And there's an echo of Ephesians here about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are one family and everybody's equal. By a virginal birth, the mother church bears the children she conceives by God's breathing, and she births them in this stream. Wishing to be innocent, wash in the bath, whether you're burdened by ancestral sin or your own, Adam and Eve sin or your own sins. And this is the fountain of life, which has cleansed the whole world, taking its origin from Christ's wound. Hope for the heavenly kingdom once you've been reborn in this spring, the happy life does not admit only once born people, and let neither the number nor kind of your sins frighten. Anyone reborn in this river will be holy. So I'm going to stop with that. I've gone on uh, probably a little past the time I'm supposed to have gone. So I hope uh, we have some questions and maybe I will stop screen sharing and we'll hope for the best and see how that goes. I might have to come back to the slides, but let's let's stop for the moment. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So uh, just a word on how we're going to do questions. Word on how we're going to do questions. Uh, we will have Brianna pass around a mic. Um, due to technological tomfoolery, I'm going to ask that you kind of keep your questions uh, succinct um, and not kind of um, not talk over one another, just because we'll have to have this muted while uh, while we do it. Okay. No worries. Um, yeah. So with that, uh, questions. Uh, given that we don't have a lot of sources on how baptism was practiced following Acts, but before the fourth century, uh, how standardized do we believe the practice, or do you believe the practice was? How standard do I think the practice was? That—that that yeah. was the question. Um. I don't think it was very standard at all. <laughs> I think that just as today, um, you would find even, um, I once sort of tried to use the example of um, when I lived in Nashville, Tennessee, I was talking to uh, a man who was a member of the Church of Christ, and he was saying baptism was always this way. It was always submerged adult believers' baptism, head under the water, everywhere and always. And I said, you know, I could go, if I could be in many places at one moment, and I could go to four different Catholic churches to date, this, this very year, in this town, in Nashville, Tennessee, I would see four different rituals. I mean, it, it, they, they would all think that they were doing exactly the same thing, but some would be using a baby pool in the front of the church, and some would be using a baptismal font at the back of the church, and some people would be singing this song, and some people wouldn't be singing it at all, and some people would have, you know, it, 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 I think liturgy is always um, uh, regional, <laughs> 
and and there's a kind of core um but one of the things that we've learned about baptism, even in the fourth century, when there's a lot of similarities between these rituals we know from Antioch and Syria all the way to Milan in Italy and down to Hippo in North Africa, you know, over where we would now see Algeria being, we know that there are a lot of similarities and some distinct differences. And I think that is going to always be true. Sorry, you might have gone over this a little bit, but... Uh, do you know precisely like any information on when the is this still coming through? Or, yeah, when the um, practice of full immersion, specifically like for infants, was like done away with in favor of like the sprinkling. Um, it's a wonderful question. Um, one of the things that I've done an awful lot of work on, um, and you didn't get my whole baptistry font lecture, which I could have given to you, um, but so I have um, right now working on a, a two volume two-volume catalog of early Christian baptistries across the world. And one of the things that's really apparent is that sometimes there simply isn't a big enough pool to actually get a whole body underwater. So, um, but in some places there was. And so I think, just as I sort of said this last question, I think that probably what happened most of the time, and this can kind of come from our looking at the artwork and seeing how the art of baptism was to, was made. What, what did people depict? You see a candidate sort of standing in water, and the baptizer with his hand on the right on the head, his right hand on the top of the head, and of course somebody would say, "Well, he's pushing him down into the water," but I don't think so. I think that most of the the reality would have been, especially in places where it was pretty arid climate. That water was scarce and water would be poured over the head of the person. You probably would get plenty wet, but you wouldn't necessarily get your whole body underwater. And, and I also think in many cases, they probably knelt in the pool in order to facilitate that. So I, my hunch is that more often than not, but not necessarily everywhere and always, that submersion probably didn't happen that much. And what we really saw was something we would call a fusion or a kind of water being poured over the head. The sprinkling is probably a lot later, and it probably has more to do with infant baptism. But if you were to look at a Greek Orthodox baptism, you would see that baby get down into the hole. The whole baby goes into the water. <laughs> it's quite of funny to watch. And it's really and, and the really amazing part about that. I'll tell you a funny story about that. Because the baby is first anointed with olive oil, that exorcistic anointment. A naked baby is completely covered with olive oil. Up the armpits, down the back, everything, under the butt. And so the person, the, the, the baptizer, the priest is having to hold on to a greasy baby and get the baby underwater. And it's sort of like holding on to a grease pig. It's really funny. But that's what happens. Do you know if they use cold water since they're trying to stick to that fourth century, right? Which is cold water is preferable to warm water. Are they dunking the greasy baby in like a cold <laughs> pot of water? Like that must be uncomfortable. I bet there's a lot of crying. <laughs> I shouldn't tell you this. But one of the things that happens when the baby hits the cold water. And I really believe baptismal water should be cold myself. So I don't like heated baptismal fonts, but um when the Greek baby hits the cold water and it's a boy baby, it pees. <laughs> and all the grandmothers in the congregation cheer. <laughs> it's it's a moment. <laughs> it's quite a moment. <laughs> it's, but it's inevitable because <laughs> it's cold water. <laughs> so I guess this goes back to um, what you were saying about, like, um, you know, like what makes something like a baptism valid, um, whether they be schismatic um, churches that baptize them or whether they be from a different um, sect of Christianity or whatnot. Like, but I've always had the question that I feel like I'm asking repetitively um, because of over and over again, like, yeah, what makes something like, since we as Catholics, of course, believe, I would imagine you're Catholic because you're teaching at Notre Dame. Um, what makes it that we as the true church, like, right, do mandate that one who is baptized by, right, unconsecrated hands um, 
you know, they are validly baptized. And so they nonetheless just had, right. They were, you know, cleansed of their original sin. They just, ha- they can be eligible to receive the sacrament of reconciliation, um, mm-hmm. you know, to be received into the, the true church. Like, right. What is it that makes us that it's like, they've been baptized by unconsecrated hands, um, essentially. Here's the important point. It's not, the baptizer is not the priest. The baptizer is Christ. So any person who is baptized can baptize. A midwife delivering a baby in the hospital, if the baby is, and this is a, a Catholic baby, you know, and the parents are Catholic or, 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 or even if they're not, if, if the parents want the baby baptized, the midwife can baptize the baby. It doesn't need to be a priest. So the baptizer, the priest is the person who is the officiant of the rite, but the baptizer is Christ. And so it isn't about unconsecrated or consecrated hands. That's what it might be about the that you're using the right formula. That may invalidate, if you use the wrong formula, it may invalidate the rite. So, um, but the problem is we see that there are different formulae through the history of the church. So that's a little complicated. And in the in the fourth century, there was a big debate about what you did with people who were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Or it actually even goes back a little bit into the third century. And by the fourth century, they decided that that had to be repeated if the formula wasn't correct. Now, one of the debates that really vexes the church is is what we call the Donatus controversy. And this was about whether the minister was worthy or not. Could the minister, by being uh, maybe invalidly ordained, not actually have the power to consecrate? And what the church decided in, in, in 314, and it's still the church's principle, that we don't rebaptize people based on what the minister, whether the minister was worthy or whether it was a consecrated minister or a minister done consecrated by the right bishop or the wrong bishop. So because the, the idea here is that the person is baptized, any person who's baptized is, is a Christian. Now, is that sanctified? No. You have to still join the church and become a member of the Eucharistic community, you know, in the Catholic Church. But the baptism is not repeated in any circumstances. Um, there's a story about, and it's, I'm trying to remember this. You can probably find this on Google. It's a very interesting story. But it's a story about a, a Jewish family who had a nanny who was Catholic in Italy back, at, I think, in the early part of the 20th century. And the baby was born, and she thought the baby might die. And so she baptized the baby. And the baby was taken away from the family to be raised as a Christian because the baby had been baptized by the nanny. And that baby became a cardinal. <laughs> Eventually. It's a it's a it's a sad story in some ways, and it's a and it's a, a fascinating story in some ways. But I think that remembering that the 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 true minister of baptism is Christ. I have a question. Um when do we see, so you talked about one of the aspects of baptism being the kind of new creation or the recreation. When do we see um, baptismal regeneration um, as kind of ontological or spiritual change um, kind of come up as a point of theology? So obviously right like now that is an important distinction between the group Christians who believe in baptismal regenerations versus those who don't. So when do we, when do we first see that, uh, when do we first see that come up? I would say it goes all the way back to Jesus speaking to uh, the to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John when he says you have to be reborn from from heaven, and the the poor man says it mean I have to get back into my mother's womb. And he says no no no, <laughs> I'm not that literal, but the spirit is what gives life. Um, flesh avails nothing, you know. I mean, this is the idea that um, that what we get in baptism is a spiritual regeneration. It, it's a transformative moment. And, you know, it's dangerous because if you do it and lightly and then you turn your back on it, that's that's worse than if you've never been baptized, really. So, you know, it's... it's um, so I think all along that's been 
I don't think it becomes that. I think it. I think baptism from really from the John's Gospel forward has always had that implication that it's a it's a transformative spiritual experience, um, and and so it might be that what we see too often, and I, this is where I think. Um, I'd like to speak to church groups because I think people don't realize how f- powerful and important and central this ritual is. They kind of think it's a you know a rite of passage where you welcome the baby into the congregation and everybody gets a cute candle and the baby gets a lot of presents. And, you know, that's all it is. And it's not that. It's so much more important than that. And maybe... Because the, the Catholic Church in particular has revived the rite of Christian initiation in adulthood, the congregation is beginning to learn more about how important this ritual is. And it's not just a kind of um, wonderful moment when parents can celebrate the safe birth of their child and they give it a name. Um, and it, 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 I'm, I'm not just saying Catholics do this. I think it's even more likely in lots of other places. Um, in 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 those Protestant churches that practice believers' baptism and do full immersion, like Baptists or Church of Christ, um, uh, Disciples of Christ, um, Mormons, even I think in some ways, um, I think that they also, even though they think it's it's much more personally driven, it's it's less, um, it has more. Um, what am I trying to say? Um, it, it's not a grace given by God. It's sometimes more chosen by the individual, which is a problem for us as Catholics. We like to think that we don't have that much power of our own. Um, but I, I think even there, there's a real sense that something happens to you. You are changed by this right. And so we cons- we should spend more time Remembering that right, even if we were baptized as infants, um, that we can participate when other people are baptized and we can recall and we can participate in that ritual as a kind of reaffirmation of our ritual baptism. I think that would be really helpful. Hello, I am an interior architecture student and have learned about um, a lot of early Christian art and architecture. And I'm curious um, if you, in your research, have found that there was a specific point in history when baptistries were um, no longer separated from the church itself, that um, baptistries kind of became integrated uh, through, you know, a baptismal font or a chamber within the church, etc. So in Italy and France, or I should say in Italy and Gaul, you're more likely to find freestanding buildings early. But you wouldn't find those in North Africa or Syria or uh, Turkey, which would tend to have baptismal chambers that were part of the church structure. So an, an annexed room, which led directly into the main you know, nave of the, of the church. Um, so that would vary from geographically a lot. Um, one of the things that happens is that um, baptismal fonts begin to be sort of set off to the side. <laughs> and I think it has a lot to do with the, the fact, the practice of infant baptism and the numbers of people that are being baptized at a time, you know, throughout the, the, throughout the year. In the 1960s and 70s, the church trying to, with the liturgical renewal movement was really interested in having the baptismal font be taken out of the closet as it were and put into the center of the church and one of the places that's preferred for it so architecture student um is actually at the back of the church so it's in direct line to the altar so that you come in and the first thing that you encounter is the baptismal font which you may use as a holy water stoop so you may bless yourself as you come in with the baptismal water, but you're also then, you're seeing the kind of pathway to the table. So you go from font to table. Um, and a lot of churches have decided that that is the, a really good arrangement, a sac- sacramentally appropriate arrangement for the baptismal font should be there. 
And now you know, I mean, once Easter has come and we take that Paschal candle, and of course that's the Easter candle, and that will often be standing right next to the baptismal font, and that's kind of where it should go. Um, at least it's a good place for it to go, because baptism is an Easter experience. Um, so I like to think about these kinds of symbols, uh, architectural interior symbols. The other thing that you might want to think about is the different shapes the baptismal font has had historically. And already this is all written up from history, um, but it was noticed by in, in some of the documents that came even out of Vatican II and the general instructions of the Roman Missal. A baptismal font can it very often is octagonal, so it symbolizes that eighth day. But now in some of the Catholic churches, we're seeing immersion fonts. You might see those in a cathedral. And they may be cruciform shaped because in baptism, you're entering into the passion of Christ. You're dying with Christ and being resurrected like Romans 6. So very often a baptismal font, and it has historic, uh, it's very historically correct. There are baptismal fonts that are cruciform all the way back to the fourth century. Um, baptismal fonts can be multi-relobed. They can be shaped like a clover leaf or other shapes. So they're very popular shapes for baptismal fonts as well. So um, one of the things that I love to talk to architects about is, you know, what, where do you build your font? How is it, you know, how do you use it? Um, is it going to be both for adults and for infants? Um, will you have it in the church uh, accessible for people to renew their baptism throughout the Easter season? Um, so rather than maybe aspersing the people, maybe they can come to the font if it's not a huge congregation. So it's a it's a kind of lovely, it's a it's a beautiful um, object to be really given careful thought to and where it goes and how it's shaped. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.